Psalm 33. This is at page eight, uh, 463 in your pew Bibles, if that's helpful to you. Psalm 33, where we'll be reading the first three verses. In our series on corporate worship, the thing we've returned the house of the Lord to do, and uh, in so doing, have uh, found ourselves in a stream that reaches back not only centuries, but millennia. We've spoken of worship as the top priority of the church. That is, what we are doing right now is the pinnacle of the life of the church, and indeed of, of every Christian, the gathering together of ourselves to worship God. We've asked, what is worship? And the Bible has answered that it is the renewal of God's covenant with us between God and ourselves, this transaction. Well, no wonder then that it is also a representation of the gospel every week since the gospel encapsulates our entire relationship with the Lord. We've also spoken about the standard of worship consisting as it does of the entire Bible, not just one testament or the other. And from that standard, we've learned of the physicality of worship, that is the importance of the physical of our bodies engaged in the worship of God, and also about the spirituality of worship, that it is essential that our worship rise from and renew and engage our hearts. Now there are other things that must be said about worship, and indeed many, many things that could be and I do not intend to exhaust that list because I do not want to exhaust you. Uh, but there are a few more primary emphases that the Bible places on worship to which I want to draw your attention before we finish our series on worship. And one of those must certainly be this, the premium that God himself places upon beauty in his worship. Let's pray. Father, we want our worship, your worship, to be everything that is pleasing to you and everything that you have revealed in your word that you desire it should be. We've said before, just last week, that uh, you are seeking worshipers who will worship you in spirit and truth. We pray that our worship may more and more be that place where you find what you're seeking even in this way now, to which we pray your Spirit will open our eyes and our hearts and grant us grace to conform ourselves more and more. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 33. We'll be reading the first three verses. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. As soon as I had uh, decided to ask Debbie to marry me back in 1987, I had a very important task, one of the most important of my entire life. And that task, of course, was the selection of a ring. 
And uh, more specifically, it was the selection of a proper diamond for that ring. Now, bear in mind, I was barely into my college years at the time. Literally, I was a sophomore and in uh, so many ways, uh, therefore, truly in the Merriam-Webster uh, definition, sophomoric. <clears throat> Some might have thought I was more of a sophomoron, but um, I was lacking in maturity and in taste and in judgment. Well, at least, praise be to God, I understood. <clears throat> I was mature enough to understand how immature I was. So uh, making the biggest purchase of my life up to that point, I understood, was going to require a great deal of work on my part. So <clears throat> off I went, because of course in uh, those days there was no World Wide Web, and that meant that I was going to have to wear out some shoe leather. And that's exactly what I did, visiting jewelers, researching how one even shopped for a diamond uh, to begin with. Uh, but the labor was made sweet uh, by love. Of course, I soon learned what all of you know about already, the, the four C's, right, of diamond quality. Carrot, cut, color, and um, did I say clarity already? I think I... And so those are the four, carrot, cut, color, and clarity. Before long, I found myself no longer asking jewelers across the counter what he or she saw through the glass. Rather, I asked for the glass and the diamond and checked it myself. I held it to the light to see how well it refracted and reflected the light until I finally found one that was the best that I could afford as a truck-driving college student. Now, why all of this painstaking work? For one simple reason. I wanted to give to Debbie, my fiance, my future wife, the best that I could, the most beautiful diamond I could possibly give her. It didn't have to be that hard, of course. You know, I could have settled for the most sparkly, flashy, easily secured, and inexpensive offering. But, but love required the work. Only the most genuinely, truly beautiful diamond would do. We live by this principle, don't we? When it comes to the ones we love, only the best, most beautiful offerings we can afford will do. So when it comes to worship, why would it be any different? Indeed, especially when it comes to worship, why would we settle for anything less than the most beautiful offering we can give? God certainly understands this principle of love and so is not bashful at all in his word. He's downright emphatic in his scripture about the beauty of the worship that we must give to him. When we, we went to Psalm 33, but the fact is we could have gone to any number of places in the Bibles to make the point. The one that has been on our minds recently, of course, has to do with the garments that God called to be placed upon his ministers as they serve in his sanctuary. They are to be, he says in Exodus 28, for glory and for 
beauty. They were not for keeping the minister warm. Uh, they were not for some merely practical purpose. They are for beauty, the Scripture says, so that God's worship may be beautiful, right down to the garments that are worn by the church's pastors. And then a very interesting turn that we shall see is also true here in Psalm 33. Beauty and skill go hand in hand. As God called on the skillful to make those garments back in Exodus 28, God said this, You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make the garments. We could look elsewhere, as I say. We could look at the early worship of our fathers and mothers in the faith and find the same thing is true with regard to architecture. The structures of the places where God was to be worshipped and the things that were in the places where God was to be worshipped. All, all were, were to be beautiful. Specific people, the Bible says, were filled with the Spirit of God, the Scripture says. They were filled with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, and in every craft. Why? Simply so that they might come together and make a beautiful place with beautiful furnishings for the worship of God. Now, I've read the first three verses of Psalm 33, a very short text. I realize. Actually, I'm interested even in shorter than that in just the last uh, words, the last couple of words of the second verse set of verse 3. Play skillfully. Or as one of the commentators, a very fine commentator on the Psalms translates it, play beautifully. I find it very important and informative that the text has been translated both ways skillfully and beautifully now however one translates the text it obviously amounts to the same thing the reason God wants the playing to be skillful is that he wants it to be beautiful and because he wants it to be beautiful it must be skillful he says and because he wants this kind of worship and we want to give it to him. Here in Psalm 33, the matter is the quality of the worship offered to God in song. But by analogy, we could talk about everything in God's worship. Everything about our worship ought to be offered skillfully, beautifully, artistically. It ought to be the very best that we can give. The best we're capable of. We are, however, as Reformed Christians, and especially as typical American evangelicals, we're stepping outside of our zone here, aren't we? Beauty is not our specialty. As children of the Reformation, truth, truth, that's our bailiwick, right? And then utility as American evangelicals in this modern day. 
the category of, of beauty is outside our worship vocabulary. It hardly registers. You know, in philosophy, there are three transcendent categories, aren't there? You've studied philosophy, know this. There's, 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 philosophy devotes itself to three things, to ethics, to epistemology, and to aesthetics. Or to put it in, in plainer terms, the study of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Good theology devotes its time to these three subjects too, the good, the true, and the beautiful. But our problem, of course, is that we always tend to one or maybe a couple of these at the expense of the other. I say we who stand in the Reformed tradition of Christian theology tend to have a zeal for right doctrine, for what is true. Alas, though zeal for right doctrine is commendable, of course, ours is not always reflected in a similar zeal to apply this doctrine in ethics, to what is right, or to aesthetics, what is beautiful. Other theological traditions emphasize ethics, what is good, and ignore truth and beauty. I think we can say safely that many modern Protestants are united, though, in this, in our neglect of aesthetics, of beauty. There's some history behind this blind spot of ours, by the way. Due to um, the errors of the medieval church, iconoclasm, the, the removal of all artwork from the sanctuary, has been the reformed, uh, our Reformed Church's legacy since the Reformation. Today, many Protestants, utilitarian evangelicals as we are, show little concern, for example, for the architecture of the place of worship, for architectural beauty and the construction of church buildings. We prefer structures that look more like shopping malls or, or theaters or meeting halls to ornamented sanctuaries, multi-purpose rooms to those specifically set apart for the worship of God. Others don't even see visual po uh, artistry or poetry or music as legitimate vocations. Yet God puts a premium on beauty, especially in worship. Now, this is not a matter of mere externality either, by the way. This is one of those places where the physicality of our worship and the spirituality of our worship very much intersect and overlap and blend together we go back to Archbishop William Temple's biblically informed definition of worship from last week, we are reminded how integral beauty must be to worship that is pleasing to God. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of mind with His truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty the opening of the heart to his love the surrender of the will to his purpose and all of this gathered up in adoration God's beauty that purifies our imaginations is 
by God's own design, woven into his worship, woven into the sights and the sounds of worship in his sanctuary. Christians at their best have always understood this and put it into practice. Debbie and I were reminded of this fact when we were years ago on a trip with R.C. Sproul to some of the most beautiful cathedrals in Europe. And we stood there, mouths to, uh, together, our mouths agape at the stained glass. The immense, towering stone columns rising to the high and vaulted ceilings, the flying buttresses, the intricate carvings and paintings, all of which reflected the majesty and the beauty of the one whose worship they were specifically built not only to accommodate, but to inspire in the worshiper. Now we could apply this principle in a myriad of ways, and this sermon easily be made into a whole series of, of sermons. But this morning, having chosen Psalm 33, we turn our eyes to just one area of worship that must be beautiful, our music. God calls us, dear flock, to sing. And he calls us to sing skillfully and to sing beautifully. So let's break it down. What are the components of song, of singing? Well, we could say that there are two, text and tune. And both are in view here in Psalm 33. First, consider text, the words that we sing to God. Apparently, this is very important to God. It's not very hard to deduce, is it? Because he gave, God gave the biggest single space in his Bible to singing in the sanctuary, the Psalter, the book of Psalms. And by looking at it, we may understand what is beautiful to God. Through the Psalms, uh, or rather though the Psalms vary in complexity, what they all share is a theological richness that demands rigorous thought. Just take a look at verse 6 of the Psalm we're in right now. We could, we could glance anywhere. We'll just grab verse 6 of Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Typical of Hebrew poetry, we have two parallel thoughts. Versets, they're called. But they're not merely synonyms or synonymous. This isn't two ways of saying, of saying simply the same thing. There is also here synthesis, isn't there? The second verse set adds detail and commentary to the first. There is similarity, yes, between the two, but there's also diversity, isn't there? This is beautiful artistry. That's what it comes down to. It's beautiful artistry. This is complex and beautiful literature. In fact, the Psalms have been described as some of the most beautiful literature that has ever been written. <laughs> and we get to sing it. Brothers and sisters, we get to sing beauty 
to the Lord, to the God of beauty. So it is with our best hymns of the past 2,000 years, by the way. We have, when we pick up our hymnals, some of the world's greatest, most beautiful poetry. A good hymnal bears witness to our Heavenly Father who gives us poetry. So let what we sing, the words that we sing, be a credit to Him. Our very best, the deepest, most beautiful poetry possible. There is no excuse for the disposable music that is being sung by so much of the church of our day. Texts that are here today and gone tomorrow because they don't even possess the sticking power of love ballads from the 1970s. You know, I find it very telling that Elton John, when he would find himself suffering a writer's block, would sit down and write a hymn. You know, we're still listening to Elton John on the radio, but the music that was popular in the church ten years ago, five years ago, even one year ago, has already been lost and forgotten, tossed away and replaced. Why? Well, because it was not beautiful. It had no depth, no complexity, no richness, and some no beauty. Same for the doggerel, superficial and predictable that's being widely sung in the church today. Next year, certainly 10 years from now, it will be gone. Dear flock, we will not settle for singing what is popular when we can sing what is beautiful to God. And the same second with the tune. All indications are that music, that the music to which these psalm texts were originally set was as beautiful as the poetry itself. They played, as verse 3 suggests, beautifully and skillfully. And we certainly know from elsewhere in the Scripture that David required that the musicians who accompanied the praise in the temple were carefully trained until they were skilled for the work. We see this reflected in the psalm titles too, don't we? We don't pay very close attention to those. Maybe you, maybe you will in the future. But we read in the titles often of the psalms of the tunes that were carefully matched to the words, the very way that we continue today, very carefully to match words to tunes that will carry the words in fitting ways in our worship. This is also a besetting issue, by the way, for the church of our own day. New tunes are being cranked out every day. But if you listen carefully to many a new praise and worship CD, you will quickly notice that the tunes are all very, very much alike. Simplistic, often, especially when joined with a, a classic hymn, woefully inadequate to carry the weight of what is being sung. The right tune lends glory to the words that are being sung. 
You know, we dare even to, to sing in a minor key in our worship from time to time or at a slower tempo, a tempo. not because that kind of music is popular. It most certainly is not. But because there are issues of sin and grief and repentance that honesty requires us to sing and that with a fitting tone in the presence of God. And we sing in harmony. Harmony is a great expression of beauty, isn't it? Unity created out of diversity. Male voices, female voices, adult voices, child voices, sopranos, altos, tenors, and basses, all together forming a single sound. I've told you in the past, haven't I, that uh, as a minister, I have the best place in the house, and I do. I get to hear the singing of this congregation. I wish you could understand how beautiful is the sound of your magnificent harmony in this house. Alas, this too has disappeared from much of the modern church along with the hymnal itself. Congregations no longer even get to see the notes, even of the melody supplied to them to read. Just words projected up on the wall. I am not using hyperbole at all when I say this to you. I am deeply grieved and grieving for a generation of Christians growing up in America who are deprived of the opportunity to sing great and beautiful music to the Lord. I tell you, someone is going to answer for taking the church's birthright from her and exchanging it for a mess of pottage. Do you know that there is an entire generation of Christians now in America who have never once sung Martin Luther's mighty hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. Let alone an entire psalm. No more than a single verse or two sh shredded out. And now, we're not talking about worship that's beyond our ability to give here. We do not use poetry or music that's so high that plain people like we are cannot attain to it. But as we see in the Bible, singing beautiful music to God is going to require work on our part. We will have to put effort into singing the sort of profound thoughts to the sort of serious music that rises to the standard of music that we read in the Bible. But you know, don't you, when you look at anything beautiful, you know, think of anything that's beautiful. Think of a beautiful sculpture. Think of, the, of, of a painting that you've seen that is just beautiful. When you look at it, you know this, don't you? You know it took work. It took effort. It took thought. 
even, even appreciating fine art and beauty requires thought and work and effort. You know, when you look at a beautiful diamond, that it took a great deal of careful and skillful work to cut it in precisely the ways that it would shine and sparkle most brilliantly on the finger of a bride. Oh, good grief, it takes a great deal of work just to learn how to judge the beauty of a diamond. At least it did for one lovesick college sophomore. Well, if we put that much work into what we offer mere human beings whom we love. And I say, how much more effort must we put into offering beautiful worship to the God whom we love above all? The most beautiful worship we can possibly bring. As a side note, think about this. We've said in this series of worship, haven't we, on worship, that that worship is the main engine, the great engine of of Christian discipleship. It is here that we grow as Christians, and the music we sing simply must have a profound effect on that shaping of us as well. A congregation that sings anemic music is in all likelihood an anemic congregation. A congregation that sings deeply devotional theologically sound, thoughtful, and beautiful music will grow into that shape itself. Thankfully, there are still congregations that sing beautifully, and praise be to God, you are one of them. How pleasing to God, and even to the angels in our our midst, in our worship, must be the thoughtful full-throated harmony of voice that fills this sanctuary and rises from here to heaven. There is a power in singing here that bears witness to the truth and to the beauty of God himself. Listen, God sits enthroned where? You remember this from the scripture? God sits enthroned on what? On the praises of his people. Now there's a thought for you the next time you sing to God in worship. You and I are forming the throne of God by our worship. Now let me ask you this. What kind of throne would you have God seated upon? Dear flock, God has given us great power. He's given us He's given us power to give him a beautiful sacrifice of praise and worship. He's given us gifts of artistry and of poetry and of composition and so on. What shall we give him but the very best we can offer? The Lord deserves this from us, and we need it ourselves, don't we? Let us grow up then more and more into that kind of worship, demanding, yes, as it may be of us, that will best glorify God and draw us closer to Him with hearts and hands and voices. Let us worship God, bending the gifts He's given us to holy use, not just in our singing, but in all of our prayers, our poetry, our architecture, and our oratory. His beauty requires 
beauty. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Amen.